Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Backdrop. I'm your host, Matt Considine. It's that time of year. The birds are chirping, grass is starting to green, and computer screens and television sets around the world are starting to glow with the iconic images and music of the Masters. In preparation of golf's grandest stage, we asked statistician and researcher for PGA Tour Radio and Fox Sports, PJ Malik, to join the pod and warm our Masters engines with an exhaustive history from Horton Smith's first win in 1934 to Patrick Reed's 2018 Green Jacket Triumph. Enjoy this part one of a two-parter, where PJ shares some of the untold stories and lesser-known details of Augusta National and the Masters Invitational. All right, well, PJ, thanks for uh, for joining the bag drop. This is a, re- I'm pretty excited. Not gonna lie. Um, before we we get into this history lesson, uh, primarily on the Masters, I uh, I want to talk a little bit about who you are and give our audience some context. Right, so um, you worked in the broadcast booth as a statistician and researcher for for Fox. Uh, during this past year's U.S. Open, and did you do any of the other USGAs? Yeah, and then I did. I worked the U.S. Senior Open up at uh, Colorado Springs at the Broadmoor. Nice. Okay, so um, you have. Uh, did you intern with any of these groups, or was this? Did you just directly to the statistician role? How did you get into statistician work and, and research? Yeah, so I uh, so I graduated from the University of Dayton in May of 2018. And uh, played golf there all four years. And uh, at the end of the semester, my second semester, kind of realized that I, you know, probably need a job once I graduate. So I was fortunate enough to kind of stumble upon this position of Fox Sports and was able to, you know, kind of trick them into hiring me. And, uh, you know, I worked the U.S. Open in Shinnecock during the, uh, during June and, was really fun. I, you know, was a statistician up in the booth uh, for the kind of specific online featured holes and featured groups and um, learned a lot, met some really cool people. And then, you know, did a good enough job where I was hired to work the U.S. Senior Open up at the Broadmoor and uh, just kind of the same position. And, you know, went really well. It was interesting. You know, my background, I know, you know, I've known a lot about golf. I, I love the sport and just kind of, you know, pride myself on knowing some of the historical facts about it and was able to kind of use my skills and try to help the broadcast that the folks at Fox Sports and uh, during the USGA events in any way that I could. So uh, essentially, you are that smarty pants who gets all the information to the broadcasters that makes them look cool. (laughs) I try to. I try. They they do a good job of wording (laughs) it better than I do, but I try to try to help them out in any way I can. Yeah, no, it, it's uh, I think it's a fascinating role. Um, you know, you, you, the, the depths at which you dove into uh, the Open, and and we talked a little bit about already, and we're going to do the same for the Masters here. But um, I uh, I have to imagine. I mean, is it is it a little bit a pressure situation when you're up there you know you got to get that stuff to them pretty timely right like what is get give us some insight into like the exchange as your uh is google your search engine like what what do you do like what do you do before you hand something off to um curtis strange or whoever it was that you're working with in the booth like give us a rundown on, on what your process is yeah so during the u.s open at shinnecock i was in the booth with uh dave marr and owen brown and 
you know, I couldn't have been in the booth with two better guys for my first tournament. They were great to me and it was easy to work for them. And so basically what I would do is, you know, I was sitting there just kind of at a corner table in the room with the two of them. And for, you know, about 10 to 12 hours straight during Thursday to Sunday, I'd be sitting there on the computer and uh, we, our featured holes were seven, nine, 11 at Shinnecock. And so what I would do is, you know, the next group that was coming up to the tee box on seven, I kind of, you know, get some stats on, you know, maybe who the players were or what they've done in the past, what they did in the last U.S. Open in Shinnecock in 2004, just anything that I felt like was relevant to the broadcast. And then, uh, you know, if somebody, you know, if Tiger Woods whipped it into the bunker, uh, front left bunker on seven Shinnecock, I'd, you know, look up, okay, you know, there were 28 guys already today who hit it in the bunker and only three of them got it up and down. And so I'd quickly write on a note card, give it to Dave. And, you know, if he thought that it was, you know, if he had the time to use it, he'd use it. And, you know, sometimes they didn't have the time or sometimes that, you know, the group already went through the hole and he'd gotten the note card too late. But that's kind of what my day-to-day job was during the U.S. Open and U.S. Senior Open. I was just trying to, you know, find different facts, different things about the golf course. I think that was even more important for me. I, you know, I know a lot about the players, but I was interested more in, you know, what the courses held and what the uh, past tournaments, what people did there. And so I was just trying to, you know, gain as much knowledge as I could for the broadcast and, you know, try to make it, you know, kind of make my mark on it and try to help those guys in any way I could. Yeah, that's what what a first tournament to be a part of, too. I mean, I, I think from, uh, you know, you follow golf, just look at golf Twitter during that event. I, I'm pretty sure it's uh, Shinnecock this year was regarded as one of the most incredible broadcasts, you know, across the board. I mean, the streaming services were like, it, it was really good and the broadcasters were on top of it. And, you know, it's been well publicized that Fox wasn't that way. They started pretty rough uh, with that first one, whatever, how many, however many years ago, was that three years ago? They, yeah, they Chamber, started yeah, the USGA contract. Yeah. yeah, Chambers Bay of 2015 yeah. was the first one. And I think it just shows how, how, uh, you know, they've learned from some of their mistakes and they now, I mean, I think they, they do, you know, second to none job and how to get their product to, you know, just the average sports fan and kind of explain it to them. And I think they do cool things with, you know, the microphones and the cups. I think that's really cool. Nobody really ever thought of that. Um, you know, they kind of put microphones all over the golf course. That's kind of their, their stick or their stick. And that's kind of what they feel like, you know, they can pick up. Uh, different conversations, caddy player conversations, you know, player player conversations, anything that, you know, they think that could add to the broadcast or enhance it for the viewer. That's what they that's what they kind of keen in on. And I think they've done, you know, an unbelievable job and kind of having their learning curve there in 2015 and kind of adding new pieces to the puzzle after that first year. And with, uh, you know, Curtis Strange and Paul Azinger and I think they've only enhanced the broadcast. And I think, you know, these next couple of years are going to be really fun, especially the venues that they're going to with uh, Pebble Beach this summer. I think it's going to be it's going to be really cool. All right. So we'll we'll jump into the Masters here in a second. I think one last piece of context for uh, our listeners on on you is, um, you know, you, you played golf at University of Dayton. Uh, I, I unfortunately have a a slew of UD flyers who seemed to run my life. My fiance went to UD. Uh, I was the best man in a UD buddy's wedding. 
I just, I'm just surrounded by you guys. So I can't seem to escape it. But, um, before UD, you know, or before, uh, you know, playing some college golf and you're, you're an accomplished right. player yourself, uh, t- tell our audience a little bit about you, you grew up with some of the, the game's greats as, as close, uh, in your life. So maybe tell us a little bit about that. And I think, cause I think that has a lot to do with the, the crazy amount of knowledge that you have on the game yeah. at, at, uh, at your young age. I mean, how old are you? Uh, 23, 23. And you know more and, and our audience will see, you know, far more about most, most, uh, professional <laughs> tournaments, including the masters than, uh, than most 78 year olds. So t- tell us a little bit like where that started, where that came from. Yeah. So, you know, I was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, um, and, you know, born to great parents. My parents are the best that, you know, any kid could ask for. And, my dad, lucky enough for me, he's been a uh, sports agent, specifically a you know PGA Tour rep for the last 30, 35 years. I uh, started off working for a company called ProServe up in New York and was hired by a man named Hans Kramer from IMG in Cleveland in 1987, I believe. And, um, you know, Hans was a great man. He looked after my dad and they're kind of father-son duo and, you know, my dad, uh, just worked in his way up in the uh, in the ranks of IMG from kind of being on the senior tour, managing some of those guys from players like Charles Cootie and Raymond Floyd to, and Miller Barber, and started uh, you know kind of getting to the PGA Tour and was lucky enough to you know have worked with Curtis Strange now for the last 30 years and Mark Mira for the last 30 years and uh, you know he's worked with a lot of you know, uh, big names and. Uh, you know, he's become friends with a lot of, you know, good guys. He, you know, he knows Tiger Woods pretty well and just hung out a lot with him just because of his relationship with Marco Mira. And, you know, my dad, he worked with, he worked for IMG for 20 years from 88 to 2008 and then left IMG and went on his own and formed his uh, company that he now works for called MVP, Malik Venturing Partners, and has been doing that for the last 11 years. And, you know, which has been fun for me, especially because, you know, he doesn't travel as much anymore as he used to when he was with IMG. So he's been around, you know, which was fun for me. He was around, you know, my entire high school career and around my college career. So, you know, it was fun to I have a lot of fond memories of just him and me on the range practicing and going out for a late nine and just, you know, spending time with my dad. And I think that's the biggest thing with golf is that it's been a huge part of my life because it's what my dad does. And that's, you know, essentially what put food on the table for him, you know, me and my brother and my sister. And at the same time, it, you know, it was a game that kind of forged this bond between, you know, my dad and his oldest son. And that's, you know, kind of what we have gravitated towards. And, you know, my dad kind of prides himself on knowing a lot about the history of the game. And, you know, he's always coming up with random facts about, you know, like, you know, the five tournaments that Chip Beck won and stuff like that, just random things that nobody would ever think of. And, you know, he, he tells me and my brother about it. So I think I got a lot of that from my dad and just kind of the, you know, historical side of the game and wanting to learn more because I felt like, you know, in order to have a conversation with him, I I needed to know something about it. So that's kind of my background in the game. And, you know, hopefully I can, you know, when I get married and have kids, hopefully I can pass it on to my sons. So. Yeah. And, and, uh, thanks for sharing it. Cause I just think it's, um, it's good context because, you know, most of us grew up with, yeah, you know, maybe some banter around uh, our high school golf match at the dinner table. You, you were, you know, hearing stories about Chip Beck and Mark O'Mara. So I think that has a lot to do with, 
you know, your uh, expedited knowledge of this uh, of this game on the professional level. And uh, and it's really cool. And, and the golf is such a small world. I think I told you this already, but when I was your age, I was probably 22, maybe, maybe 21. Um, I was an intern at IMG and I actually did a little bit of work yeah. for your dad. And, and he is, uh, he's one of the most respected guys in the industry. So it's, uh, it's no doubt that, that you're, you're going to do great just because you're, you're from a chip from that block. Um, let's dive into the masters. We're getting ready for the right, tournament. The music is already playing on our commercials and the TVs. And we all, you know, are just, uh, I start hearing Jim Nance's voice when I wake up in the morning. So that's, uh, yeah, I can hear that's, a soft whispering voice right now. So, <laughs> and, and, and we don't want to get sued, so we won't do any trademarks, but, um, but let's go into the masters and the, uh, the beginning, I think, uh, it would help to maybe start, um, with the, the creation, you know, let's go to your or, or origination story. I, I think that's a better place to start than any. So, you know, 1929, there's a match play, uh, uh, first round of match play at the USAM with, with Bobby Jones. Tell us why that, why was that significant to the creation of the masters? Yeah, I think that, you know, I think, I don't know, you know, Bobby Jones died about you know almost 50 years ago, but I think that he would admit that that might've been his best loss in his career. Uh, cause if he had not lost in the first round of the US amateur, I don't think you know, Augusta National and the Masters would be what it is today. But uh, so the 1929 U.S. Amateur at Pebble Beach, Bobby Jones lost actually in the first round to a young 19-year-old named John Goodman. And this loss was significant because this allowed for Bobby to kind of stay out in California for the next couple of days. And he played two golf courses, Pasa Tiempo and Cypress Point, that were both Alistair McKenzie designs. And he was able to meet Mr. McKenzie while he was playing the golf course. And he thought to himself, wow, you know, this is, this is who I need to design my dream golf course down in Georgia. This is what I need, you know, this golf course to look like. And so after his loss and he was able to get back to Atlanta, his hometown, uh, he just kind of became enamored with designing his perfect golf course. He wanted to make it an ode to St. Andrews because of, what that golf course meant to him. The old course was really significant in Bobby Jones's career. It was, it signified, uh, you know, Walker cup teams that he played on. Um, he won the British amateur there. He, he famously tore up his scorecard in the British open and walked off the golf course after hitting it in hell's bunker about, you know, three or four times. He was just frustrated with it. And, uh, there's a great story that Harry Varden came to his hotel room that night and basically just kind of calmed them down and said, you know, this golf course, people have been playing this golf course since the, they thought the world was flat. And, you know, if you want to be, become a champion golfer, you're going to have to learn how to play her. And, you know, essentially that's what he did. And, you know, the Europeans and the Scottish, they probably hold Bobby Jones up to a higher standard than, than the Americans do. Uh, they fell in love with him. And after 1930 and after Bobby Jones, won the, uh, back then the career Grand Slam. It's not the modern day Grand Slam now, but that we have. But the amateur Grand Slam, he decided that it was time for him to hang up his golf shoes and kind of you know, go after this dream of his and start this, uh, start this golf club, this perfect golf course. Wow. And it's, I, the, the, um, the Ode to St. Andrews, I mean, he, it, could you imagine going from, 
like he tore up his scorecard, hated the place, to wanting to like have your uh, your swan song be a course that attributes it. I mean, that, talk about like right. complete reversal over the course of a life. That's uh, it's amazing. That's I talk way too much about the old course on this podcast, but uh, it is it is truly a spiritual place. Um, yeah, I've, no, I've, so, I've been there. Oh, sorry. I've been there, no. but uh, I've never played it, and it was it was awesome. It, it's it's a special place. If you're a golf fan, you you know you gotta you gotta make it over there. So, uh, 1933, the course opens. Um, talk, talk a little bit about McKenzie's uh, involvement. You know, he was selected. I think there was like a running with uh, was it Donald Ross was the other one that he was uh, speaking to, or who else was in in the running for the the design of the course. Yeah, so Donald Ross was in the running, but they uh, eventually just settled on Alistair McKenzie, I think, just because of his, you know, Pasa Tiempo and Cypress Point designs. And um, so 1931, they decided to break ground on this old 19th century indigo plantation that had just been sitting there for hundreds of years. And Bobby Jones said to think that, you know, this piece of land has been sitting here for years and years, just waiting for a golf course to be built upon it. And so they broke ground in 1931, and uh, with the help of Alistair McKenzie and uh, Bobby Jones's good friend and investment dealer Clifford Roberts, uh, it took them about two years to open the golf course in 1933. The sad thing is, which is kind of a little depressing, is that uh, Alistair McKenzie ended up dying in 1934 before the first Masters was played, and uh, he ran in some into uh, some money trouble. I mean, it was during the Great Depression, kind of right in the middle of it, and the club was having financial hardships as well. And there are actually, if you go online, there are notes that you can find that Mackenzie had written to Bobby Jones and to the Augusta National Golf Club asking to get paid, asking for them to to give him his money for the design. And, you know, it's just the signs of times, and they didn't, you know, they weren't able to do it. And, and sadly enough, you know, Alistair, passed away broke i mean he had no money and it's kind of sad for you know probably the greatest golf course designer of all time you know it's kind of a sad way for him to pass on like that yeah yeah when, when you're you know most notable golf course uh he he died never knowing you know what it would become and its influence on the game i mean uh and, and he didn't get paid that's crazy right I know that's but just, I, I guess it's it's, it's not that crazy because of the depression. It's right in the heart of it, right? So, man, right, man, that's uh, that's nuts. So, so Mackenzie, they they get the the place built. Um, the uh, jo- Jones initially did a different tournament, didn't he? Didn't he want? Wasn't he talking to USGA? Yeah. So you know, Bobby Jones, the USGA darling. Uh, he wanted them to hold the U.S. Open there. And so he went to the USGA, talked to them about a petition for the U.S. Open to be held at the brand-new Augusta National Golf Club. And uh, the USGA committee went out, saw the golf course, and they thought it was a great idea. The only problem was was they didn't want to hold the tournament there because it would be in June, and they didn't want the hot Georgia heat to become a factor in playing their tournament. So they told they came back to Bobby and said that, you know, they'd love to do it, but they don't want to do it because of the heat. And so Clifford Roberts decided, you know what, let's just have our own tournament. Let's just do something different. You know, we don't have to wait on the USGA. We don't have to hold the U.S. Open. Let's just make our own tournament. 
1934, uh, that's kind of when the tournament started. It, the Augusta National Invitational, the very first Masters, was held in 1934. And, you know, Bobby Jones came out of retirement to kind of boost the credibility of the tournament and to kind of use his name as, you know, one of the hallmark players of that generation. And, uh, you know, it was ended up becoming a great tournament. Horton Smith shot four under and one by one shot over Craig Wood. And the interesting thing about that was in 1934, the back nine, as we know it today, actually was the front nine. And so, you know, vice versa, they ended on, they ended on the ninth hole. And so, which is kind of, you know, as you think about it now, it's a little funny. I, I don't know, you know, if seven, eight, and nine were the holes that you'd really want the tournament to be coming down to because you think of, you think of the illustrious 16th hole and all, you know, amen corner and, you know, the back nine, the Masters doesn't start until the second nine on Sunday. And I think, you know, to think of it back then, it's a little different. Yeah, that would be, uh, they would need to coin a new phrase for seven, eight, nine, but it certainly doesn't have the picturesque uh, risk reward of Amen Corner and uh, and then, like you say, the the stretch to the finish. Um, crazy! I didn't see. This is why this is this is why it's so cool. I did not know that they started the tournament. Two things: so the back nine was the front nine, and uh, it did not start as the Masters. It started as Augusta National Invitational. Right. Yeah, and that actually didn't. They didn't really call it the Masters until 1939, which is interesting because Bobby Jones, he thought that the name the Masters was too pretentious. And so he initially you know, kind of disregarded the idea of naming the tournament the Masters. And uh, the players kind of always nicknamed it that for the next couple of years, and that's what they referred it to. And I think, you know, a little peer pressure, Jones finally, you know, relented and in 1939 decided that that's what they were going to call their tournament from then on. And, uh, you know, the tournament kind of, it took a little while to kind of catch on. I mean, uh, you know, what happened was, you know, in 1935, I think a lot of people know, a lot of golf fans know that Gene Sarazen ended up making it two on the 15th hole from three shots down to end up being tied for the lead. Uh, and that kind of catapulted the tournament a little bit. It's called the shot heard around the world. And, uh, you know, I think that's kind of what helped the tournament out, kind of what it needed instead of just being another, you know, PGA Tour stop. It was really a – it kind of made, you know, the fans kind of gravitate towards it after they learned about Gene Sarazen's double eagle. And uh, so I think that's kind of what helped the tournament propel itself a little bit. And, you know, it took a little took a little stop in, uh, during the World War II era in 1943 to 1945 the tournament actually they closed the tournament and uh the course was actually used to raise cattle for the war effort which is kind of funny but uh to imagine that you know you had cows and sheep eating the you know the pretty azaleas on augusta national but that's you know kind of what bobby jones and clifford roberts wanted to do and in order to help the u.s effort so Closed, shut it down for the World War. Let the okay. cows graze, which is also like le another lesson for golf anywhere. I think we should let more animals graze on our fairways because, I mean, it, it, it's resilient. It comes back, folks, and and it's it's not that bad. Look at look how they do it over in Scotland and Ireland. But uh, yeah. but anyways, 
um, anything from World War to like we'll get into kind of the significant tournaments and some of the more facts, but anything else in terms of like the tournament overall that uh, that occurred or was of interest? Yeah, so just to kind of wrap that up a little bit, just some historical facts. Uh, in 1949, the first green jacket was awarded to uh, Sam Snead. And Bobby Jones thought that it would be a nice thing to do to award the winner of the Masters with a club coat. Uh, initially, just the members of Augusta National were given the green jacket. Uh, he figured that you know the green would kind of stand out in the crowd and be able to you know help people with you know directions on the golf course or inside knowledge, anything that you know fans might want and are interested in while. You know, being at Augusta National, Bobby Jones thought that, you know, whatever could help the tournament, uh, he wanted to, you know, to kind of use the members as, for lack of a better word, just volunteers and to kind of help the tournament with his knowledge. And so he felt like, you know, there was no better way to kind of reward the Masters champion with a green jacket. So Sam Snead was rewarded that in 1949, and it was a tradition that, you know, has gone on ever since. And uh, in 1952, Ben Hogan, the defending uh, Masters champion from 1951, uh, suggested to Clifford Roberts that they should hold a past champions dinner every year uh, during that Tuesday of the Masters week. And so from, you know, from then on, it's just these kind of little subtle things that, you know, probably back then nobody really thought would become a big deal. And you look at it now and you think of the champions dinner, you know, the most exclusive dinner invitation in the world you think of you know the the green jacket which is you know the coolest trophy in sports i mean you think of you know these illustrious you know things that have just become over time these traditions that you know it's just enamored with the club it's it's what you think of when you think of the masters and that's why that's why we love it i i that's that's so true and the one thing that i think about with things like the green jacket and champions dinner and these these little traditions that um they, they just came up with is it's it's almost like you know bobby jones and, and it was like his buddies and obviously the players and they're just they're kind of just like tossing ideas around like could you imagine being ben hogan like you just won you're showing up for your practice round the next year he goes you know what we, we should have a dinner we should have dinner. We should yeah. invite all the pets. Champ- Why not? You know what? I'll throw together a menu. <laughs> and and Bobby exactly. probably saying like, yeah, that sounds great. I, I, I think it's, uh, we get a little taste of it because we run a golf society and we, we, we create tournaments and we're like, yeah, you know, that would be fun. It's like they're doing it, but they're doing it for the world's greatest golfers and in, in creating this, uh, this thing with so much mystique to it. It's, it's just so crazy how this stuff came to be. Right. I mean, that's the crazy thing is, I mean, I'm sure, you know, Ben Hogan probably never thought that, the dinner now would be, you know, the most exclusive dinner invitation in the world. But I mean, that's, you know, that's kind of what happened. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Like you said, it's just, you know, just a couple buddies kind of, you know, shooting the bowl and all of a sudden, you know, these things have, you know, they're on paper and they look cool and it might happen for the next couple of years. And now they're just, they're just enamored with history. All right. Well, so let's, let's get into some significant events. I know I asked you to, I, we could easily spend an, three hours going from, yeah. you know, 1934 till now, but I, I wouldn't do yeah. that to, uh, to our listeners. So that's, that's, uh, you've kind of tried to pull out some that are just of note of interest. And, uh, why don't we go through them 
And, and as you're doing that, I might stop you and ask for a little more detail and give you some, uh, some, some quizzes. Well, maybe we start with that shot her around the world, which we've all heard of Gene Sarazen's, you know, double Eagle on 15, uh, which is nuts. I, I keep waiting for the next one. Cause you know, so many guys go for that green and two. Um, do you, do you know what club he hit? Yeah, he hit a, uh, he hit a three wood and, you know, he said that he actually, his, one of his playing partners told him that if he could hurry up, that'd be great. Cause he had a, he had a dinner date later that night and he didn't want to miss it. And so Sarazen <laughs> said that <laughs> Sarazen said that he kind of actually rushed the shot a little bit. He wasn't really ready, but he got up anyway and hit it. And he said the great, the greatest moment of his life was because Bobby Jones was there to witness the shot. He pulled up in his cart right when Sarazen was over the ball. And uh, so, you know, Gene says that, you know, he hit the shot and it, it looked good the whole way. And, you know, luck is have it luck would have it that, you know, it ends up in the hole and he was three shots behind going to the 15th hole from behind Craig Wood. And that ended up sending him, him and uh, Craig Wood into a playoff the next day. And he was able to defeat Craig by five shots. And, you know, that's kind of what set the tournament. I think, you know, kind of put it on the map a little bit. Whoa. Yeah. Stuff like that is like circumstances that come to be moments in time that just, like you said, it, it blew up after that, or it started to get some publicity and they changed the name in 39. Um, so, so what's next? What's the next big uh, uh, tournament that's uh, to note? Yeah. So I think just to kind of, you know, talk about a little stuff that went in the, went on in the forties, um, Byron Nelson in 1942, he won his second masters. He defeated a young man by the name of Ben Hogan. He beat him. He defeated him by one shot in an 18 hole playoff. Uh, what's interesting is that Hogan actually had a three-shot lead with five holes to play in regulation on Sunday and uh, just kind of choked it. Just kind of, you know, this was before Hogan was Hogan, before the secret, um, you know, before the car accident and everything, kind of Hogan's allure. And so nobody was really afraid of Ben yet. And um, he was still fighting his his problems, you know, his mental problems and the hook that kind of plagued his career early on and, I think that was just a, you know, a notion of him trying too hard at the end there and trying to wrap things up and, you know, was defeated by his childhood friend, Byron Nelson. And um, so a couple years later and six years later in 1948, uh, which is kind of a cool story, Claude Harmon, which is, you know, a famous last name in, in the history of golf. Uh, his son, his son, Bush Harmon, you know, the, the famous world-renowned instructor and you know taught everybody from tiger woods to darren clark to greg norman to adam scott uh but his father claude becomes the last present day club professional to win a major championship and um you know butch was i think he was only you know five or six at the time and you know reading butch Harmon's book he you know he kind of talks about how cool it was for you know him and his brothers to go back to augusta every year and to see you know, what their, their dad did in 1948 and to kind of hear the stories about that tournament and to be able to, you know, watch their dad go to the champions dinner, you know, every Tuesday night that, that week, and then, you know, come back and tell them some of the stories about, you know, Sam Snead and Ben Hogan and, and Bobby Jones and what they were talking about at dinner. It's just, you know, it's a cool kind of insight and, 
you know, to really golf's, you know, first family of instruction. I mean, you know, Dickie Harmon, Billy Harmon, you know, all of those brothers became great instructors. And it's just kind of funny to, you know, to see that their dad was, you know, their dad was a Masters champion. Yeah. And is, has there not been a present day, a club pro to win a major sense? So 48 no, was the yeah. last one? Yeah, 48 was the last one. Wow. And well, yeah, so, I guess you uh, got a big boom in the 50s, isn't it? Exactly. And then, uh, yeah, so 1950, uh, Jimmy Demerit, he becomes the first three-time Masters champion, uh, a name that probably isn't very familiar with a lot of people, but he was known as uh, Ben Hogan's best friend on tour. And Jimmy, you know, doesn't get a lot of credit for what he did in his career, but he won, you know, he won the Masters three times. Uh, he played the par five 13th alone, six under that week, which is really impressive. Um, and then skip forward to six hundred so years. He made yeah. two, two eagles and just two birdies. Jeez. Yep. Probably, yeah. probably, so he, probably hitting a three wood into that green too. Yeah, I mean, in nineteen fifty, you know, balls going nowhere, and he was, you know, he was known as one of the long hitters. He he had an unbelievable golf swing if you ever look on YouTube. But uh, he was, you know, he was a character. He was known as kind of a. You know, I think back in that time too. You know, everybody you like to have a couple cocktails after his round, and I think you know a lot of there's been a lot of good Jimmy Demare stories that I've kind of stumbled upon. You know, just reading in books and stuff, and uh, you know, which is kind of funny because you wouldn't think of him and Ben Hogan to be great friends, but I think Ben was kind of drawn towards people that you know kind of had that outgoing personality. But Ben Hogan is one of my all-time idols, and you know, when I tell people that they kind of surprise because I, I like I'm pretty gregarious and outgoing. And and one of the reasons is I think that dude was subtly probably hilarious and a lot of fun to be around. He didn't say much, obviously, but uh, but I've I've read the same thing on Jimmy D and and Ben being buddies. And I'm like, OK, a guy like Jimmy Demerit would not be hanging out with like a curmudgeon. You know, he, exactly. he might yeah. not say much, but I, I think deep down Ben Hogan was a hip, hip dude. No, yeah, I think so too. I think he, you know, I think that's just the way he was on the golf course. I mean, I think he was a lot like, you know, like a guy like Curtis Strange or Nick Faldo, guys that, you know, didn't really talk a lot on the golf course was serious. I mean, this was their job. This is what they were trying to do. And, you know, in that moment, they were, you know, maybe they could be a little mean. Maybe they could, you know, come off as, you know, kind of a jerk. But, you know, once you get off the golf course, I mean, you know, who would you rather have a beer with than Curtis Strange? I mean, he tells the best stories in the world and he's hilarious. So, you know, I think that might be the same way that, you know, Hogan was. I think just people, especially back then, the media coverage wasn't what it's like today. And I think people just kind of misunderstood who he was as a person. So speaking of Hogan, it seemed like he kind of owned the 50s, didn't he, for for better part of the uh, the rest of the Masters in that decade? Yeah, so he, you know, he wins his first Masters in 1951. And then 1953 is kind of the year that everybody talks about, kind of associates with Ben Hogan. I mean, he won the three majors that he played in, the Masters, U.S. Open, British Open. The story is kind of famous where he went over, won the British Open in 53. And then, you know, back then you had to take a, uh, you had to take a boat over to England, to the U.K. And, you know, Hogan, when he didn't make the boat back in time to get back for the PGA Championship, so he couldn't plan it. So, you know, who knows what would have happened if he had played in the PGA championship, he might've, you know, completed the career grand slam if he had been able to get back here in time. But, uh, you know, he was also thrown a ticker tape parade in New York city and, 
you know, I mean, he one of the best years of all time. I mean, nobody had won three majors in, t- in one season until Tiger Woods did in 2000. But uh, so in 1953, Hogan sets the tournament scoring record with a 14 under 274. Uh, he broke the previous scoring record of 279, which was held by uh, uh, Ralph Goodall and Claude Harmon. And uh, that kind of secured Hogan's second Masters, and I think that was kind of a prelude to, you know, what would come in the uh, in the next two majors and in, in that season. And I think you know Hogan just he just steamrolled everybody that year. Wait, what other? Uh, all right, so to nineteen fifty three, Hogan sets the scoring record. He he had another victory too, didn't he? Or or maybe maybe he's in a playoff. Yeah, nineteen fifty one. Oh, that was fifty one with. Uh, with Byron Nelson, got it. Um, yeah. All right. What what other significant uh, ones uh, from the fifties do, do you got for us? So fifties, my actually my maybe my personal favorite Masters was uh, nineteen fifty six. So there are a lot of interesting storylines that week. Um, a young amateur by the name of Ken Venturi, who was only twenty four years old at that time. He secured the 54-hole lead going into the uh, Sunday of the Masters. And back then, you know, the pairings and how, you know, pairings were structured, it, it wasn't like today. The, the leaders weren't paired together. They wouldn't go off last. It was it was just like a, you know, Thursday pairing. They, it was just random. Every day was a, was a reset pairing, and you could, you, know, you could be the leader of the tournament and go off in the morning. And uh, so back then, the tradition – was after Byron Nelson retired from competitive golf, Bobby Jones thought it was a good idea to have Byron Nelson, even though he wasn't competing in the tournament anymore, to play in the final round with the 54-hole leader. And so every year, Byron would play in the final round just with the 54-hole leader, and that's kind of what the tradition of the Masters was. And... Saturday night of the 1956 Masters, Clifford Roberts and Bobby Jones decide that it'd be an unfair advantage to the rest of the field if they paired Ken Venturi with Byron Nelson. Now, you have to know that Byron Nelson and Ken Venturi were kind of like a father and son. I mean, they Byron helped Ken since he was you know, a young teenager, kind of saw this young man from San Francisco and felt like he had this prodigious talent and kind of took him under his wing and was a great mentor to young Ken Venturi. And they, the, you know, higher ups at Augusta National felt like, you know, if, if this kid wins this tournament with Byron Nelson at his side, it, it might not look too good. And so they decided to pair 24 year old Ken Venturi with Sam Snead. Now Sam Snead is, you know, he's a legend and he's a, person that I, you know, hold in high regard as one of the greatest players of all time. But he had this kind of reputation of being terrible towards amateurs. He didn't understand why they play in professional events. He didn't want them on the PGA Tour. He didn't want them playing in the Masters. He wanted them nowhere near professional golf. And so they stick Venturi with Snead in the final round. And, you know, Snead doesn't say a word to Ken Venturi all day long. And Sunday that day was just a terrible spring day in Augusta. It was, you know, 45 degrees. It was blowing 30 miles per hour. It was it was just terrible conditions. And there were only two players that day that broke par. And um, 
Ken Venturi ends up going out and he shoots 80. He kind of just, you know, doesn't have it that day and loses by one shot to a man named Jackie Burke. And uh, Jackie, Jackie's still alive. He's the oldest living Masters champion. He's still alive today. And uh, he tells this great story about how he he woke up Sunday morning and he was eight shots back of the lead, wasn't really thinking about winning the golf tournament. But so he went to Mass early that morning and he ended up being late to the first tee because he went to mass and he says that he, he threw an extra 20 in the plate just in case, you know, if anything crazy happened, he <laughs> felt like, you know what, may, you know, maybe God, maybe God can help me out today. And, uh, you know, so lo and behold, you know, he went, he wins the matches by one shot over Ken Venturi. And which is, you know, really interesting is, uh, Bobby Jones after the tournament pulls Ken Venturi by the side and says, uh, you know, I wanted to tell you, if you had won today, I was going to step down as chairman of Augusta National Golf Club and make you chairman. And you would have been, you know, a member right away. And and we wanted to do that for you as, you know, as the master champion, as an amateur and, and uh, you know, have you, you know, work in, down in Atlanta. And that's kind of what, you know, Venturi's role would have been if he had won that tournament. And, you know, it would have changed the course of Ken Venturi's life. I mean, it would have, you know, it's unbelievable to think back then, you know, what could have happened, what could have been. But, you know, that's one of my favorite stories because a lot of people, you know, a lot of people don't know about the 56 Masters and what that kind of, what happened there. I think he just made it my favorite Masters. That is unreal. Um, yeah. Just like the level of, uh, I mean, Saturday night changing the pairings. What a weird tradition, first off, for Byron Nelson, a retired professional, to be in that last group. I mean, that, that goes like right up there with the green jacket and champions dinner. I was like, wait, what are we? What, what's the tradition? <laughs> um, exactly. But to to change it Saturday night, I mean, there's all kinds of collusion there, right? <laughs> like, I, right? I, yeah, I, I think it sounded just, like. Oh, so I think it was just you know I think they were trying to do a nice thing for Byron. I think you know as kind of the gentleman of golf and two-time Masters champ, I think they felt like it was a nice thing to do for him. But, you know, at the same time, I mean, you know, he's not in the field. He hasn't played the first three days. It's kind of like, why, you know, why are we kind of making this up? And I think that's, you know, a situation that they never really thought through. I think all of a sudden now that, you know, you got this kid who's, you know, best of friends with Byron and, you know, you feel like, oh God, you know, if he, if he ends up winning this thing, you know, we're going to, we're going to look like, you know, we're going to kind of look bad, you know? And I think that's, so they, you know, all of a sudden they, they make the switch. And I think it's, you know, it threw Ken Venturi off because he was expecting to play with Byron. And, you know, I think, you know, just the way that Snead was with him that day and not really helping him out and not talking to him. I think, you know, who knows if that had an effect effect on him or not, but, you know, if that was me, you know, that would have an effect on me. I mean, if I was going out with, you know, if I was going out with Marco Mira to expect to play with Marco Mira and all of a sudden I was paired with Tiger Woods, you know, that would, that would freak me out. You know, that would, that would make me a little nervous. And I think that got, you know, that shook Venturi up. And I think that definitely had an effect on him that day. I think we need to work on this 1956 masters for its own screenplay. Uh, because with characters like you got Byron, obviously Bobby Jones, you got Byron Nelson, Sam, Sneed, like I never thought of him as as the I don't want to say villain, but he'd just be like a great antagonist, and right. and then you got you know pretty boy Ken Venturi and and Jackie Burke, 
coming out as the champion, still still alive, saying his prayers on Sunday morning, shooting one under. Yeah. I I think that would be the coolest story uh, that that hasn't been told yet. Um, thanks for sharing that one. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's yeah, that's one of my favorites. That's a, that's a great one. It's kind of like uh, kind of like the greatest game ever played. You know, story that nobody ever knew yeah. until they made it a movie. So, <laughs> right? Did um, a quick question on amateur golf and the Masters. Did that have any significance over it? It almost feels like a situation like that. You know, you have this uh, star-studded amateur, Ken Venturi. It doesn't turn out well. Um, do you th- do you think Bobby like almost embraced amateur golf after that for that fact, or was it already happening prior to the fifties? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think you look at the qualifications standards for amateurs back in the you know sixties and seventies. There were you know eight or ten. You know, they always had eight or ten, twelve. You know, amateurs playing in the field that year because the qualification standards were a lot lower. I mean, if you were a member of the Walker Cup team you got an invitation to the Masters. If you got to the, you know, Elite Eight of the U.S. Amateur, the quarterfinals, you got an invitation to the Masters. So the qualifications were a lot different. I think that shows, you know, Hall of Fame members nowadays that, you know, in back in the 70s, guys like Curtis Strange, Lanny Watkins, um, you know, two-time Masters champion Ben Crenshaw, they played in the Masters as amateurs two or three times. You know, these are guys, college kids, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old that are gaining this great experience by, you know, being able to play in the Masters as amateurs and, and learning the golf course because, you know, Bobby Jones had an affection for amateurs. And that's, they had this great amateur tradition. And, you know, as the years went on and as the field grew and, you know, the Masters became the Masters is what it, what it is today, I think, you know, they started getting away. They didn't get away from their amateur tradition by any means. They just started, you know, limiting limiting the criteria and how to qualify for the tournament as an amateur. They wanted to make it more prestigious, I guess. And so now, you know, they have the Latin American winner, Latin American amateur winner. They have the Pacific Asian amateur winner. They have the, uh, you know, USGA mid-am winner, the U.S. amateur winner, and the U.S. am runner-up. And you know, it's a, it's, you know, even now it's a lot harder to qualify for the Masters and AM. And, you know, it's, I think it actually makes it a little more prestigious, but back then it, you know, it was really cool. I mean, to think, you know, Hey, I could, you know, if I just get to the quarterfinals, I'm, I'm going to Augusta, you know, that'd be, that'd be pretty cool nowadays. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. Um, yeah, it's just one of the things I, I connect with and enjoy most about the Masters is they're like spotlight on amateur golf. You know, they do all the uh, the quick clips on how how people qualified and, and got there and they follow around, you know, amateurs. They have the bird nest at the clubhouse. It's just it's just so cool. It just adds to its history. Right. That's uh, so now let's jump into the 60s. I'm guessing we're going to hear a lot of the big three. Yeah. So the 60s was kind of a big, you know, time. Actually, you know, crazy stat is that from the time of uh, – 1960 to 1978, 11 of those tournaments were won by Palmer, Nicholas, or Player, which is, you know, just unbelievable. I mean, which is, and you're not even counting, you know, 1958, which was won by Arnold Palmer. So it's a crazy stat. Uh, and 1961 was the first, first Masters win by Gary Player. It was the first non-American winner. Um, and, 
you know, Arnold Palmer famously went to the 18th hole of the 1961 Masters, the 72nd tee box with a uh, with a one shot lead. And you know, Gary Player and his wife Vivian were watching the telecast and Butler Cabin and waiting for you know Arnold to come in and see what he would do. And Arnold piped drive on 18 uh, is walking down the fairway and sees an old friend of his in the crowd and his friends waving him over. And for some reason to his dying day, Arnold does not know why he went over to his buddy, but he does. And the man congratulated him on his master's victory and Arnold accepted it, shook his hand and said, thank you. I appreciate it. And, you know, it shows the type of guy that Arnold is, you know, I don't, I don't see Ben Hogan or uh, Jack Nicholas or Tiger Woods, you know, going over and shaking, you know, their buddy's hand in the crowd during the you know seventy second hole Hell of the no. Masters. <laughs> no chance. <laughs> but They're you know, Arnold is a, he, job. Yeah, exactly. And blinders, blinders on, and you know, not looking at anybody. But you know, Arnold was a different man, and he, you know, he felt like he needed to go over there for for whatever reason, and. uh so he goes over and, you know, talks to his friend and goes back to his ball and the rest is kind of history. He kind of, you know, flares out an iron shot to his approach shot into the uh, right bunker on the 18th green and gets up there and is plugged, hacks it out across the green, doesn't get it up and down for bogey. And, you know, Gary Players, your 1961 Masters champ. And, uh, you know, Arnold says it's, it's the biggest regret of his career. I mean, he regrets it more than um, blowing his seven-shot lead with nine holes to play at the U.S. Open at Olympic Club when Billy Casper ended up coming from behind and uh, forcing a playoff with him and then ended up winning the tournament. But, uh, you know, it's something that, you know, Arnold regret his, regretted his entire life, his entire career, and it's, you know, it's kind of interesting to see that it kind of shows you the type of man that Arnold is and, the, uh, you know, I guess the kind of lack of concentration and what, you know, what, you know, I guess thinking ahead can do to you in this game. Yeah, that's, that's wild. Now in, in 64, same guy on Palmer, he wins his fourth masters. Um, yeah. The uh, over one of your buddies, right? Yeah. So he actually, so he wins over uh, Dave Marr. Dave Marr uh, Jr. They, I actually, you know, know his son pretty well, Dave Marr III. Uh, he's been, you know, I worked with him at Fox and have been helping him out with his Serious Radio Golf Channel uh, the last couple months. And, you know, Dave's been great to me. And his father, you know, the he was a PGA Championship winner and, you know, a great man of golf and great announcer. But uh, so Dave, actually, there's this great story that he was, Dave Marr was paired with, Arnold Palmer uh, on the final round of the Masters that year, and they came to the six, uh, to the seventy uh, second hole, and Arnold had a six shot lead, and they both hit their tee shots, and they're walking down the fairway, and Arnold kind of puts his arm around Dave Marr and and says, you know, Dave, if you know if there's anything I can do to help you finish second alone, let me know. And Dave kind of <laughs> looks at Arnold and goes, <laughs> Dave kind of looks at Arnold and he and he looks at me and he goes, yeah. He's like, can you 12 putt here? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That's awesome. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you know, you just a little Arnie's, Arnie's, I love these side stories on, on Arnie, the stuff that kind of gives you insight to his character. Because I think in both those situations, it's like, 
uh, thing I respect most is, you know, such a competitor out there to win, um, but can interchange so quickly from uh, that, fo- that level of focus required to, you know, just banter and, and being uh, a, a cool guy to be out there with. I, he just really enjoyed it. You, you can tell, like, we always talk about the in-between the shots is so important in golf to make sure you're enjoying yourself, focus on that, and the other stuff takes care of it. You know, he, he was definitely doing that. He was He was always having a good time, it seemed. Yeah, no doubt. I think that's, you know, I think that's why people loved him. I think, you know, he'd look into the crowd and he'd be looking at your eyes, you know, he'd be looking at, you know, you know, people in the crowd and trying to, you know, kind of gravitate towards them. I think, you know, that's why initially I think people, you know, had a bad feeling about Jack is because he was the exact opposite. He was, he was all about golf. He wasn't going to let anything distract him. He didn't, he didn't care about, you know, crowd interactions at that point in his career. He cared about winning golf tournaments. And, you know, a lot like right. Tiger, when he came out, I think that's, you know, that's their mindset. And, you know, a little like what Phil has, they, he and, you know, Mr. Palmer, they were more like, you know, we, we want to win, we're competitive, and that's what we want to do. But at the same time, we want to be known as, you know, as good people and, you know, family men and, and you know, helping the crowd out and wanting them to have a good time because they understood that, you know, this is kind of what what gravitates you know, towards the game, the, you know, the younger crowd, and they wanted to make sure that, you know, people were, were getting their, you know, pay. Even Tiger in his more recent years, he's really softened a bit in terms of he's very focused, very uh, um, one-dimensional in his golf game, but he he obviously has started to realize that, man, I got I to gotta enjoy myself, take care of myself out here, and I'm just I'm going to have a lot more fun and probably play better, and that's the uh, same thing for Jack. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, you look at the history of golf and the kind of guys that were, you know, were like a little like Ben Hogan and Jack Nicholas, guys like, you know, like we're talking about Tiger right now. And, you know, it comes to mind two guys, uh, a couple guys, Ray Floyd, uh, Curtis Strange, Nick Faldo. I think they were all kind of perceived as, as, you know, not, you know, they didn't want anything to do with anybody else. They were focused on their game. And I think as they have gotten older and, you know, Faldo and Curtis doing TV and, I think people have seen different sides of them. I think they realize that, hey, they have, you know, they have a funny side. They can tell good stories. They can, you know, they can have fun. They're not, you know, they're not bad guys. They're good people. It's just that's how they felt like they could play their best golf. And, you know, some people are like that. And then you get guys like, you know, Chichi Rodriguez, who's out there, you know, waving his putter around and, you know, Lee Trevino and, you know, guys like that. You just get all different types of people and all these characters. And that's, you know, that's what makes golf so fun is that you get, you know, you can get Tiger Woods and you can get, you know, Ricky Fowler. You can get different kind of people. And I think that's what, you know, is so cool about the game. And I, and bring it back to the masters. I think all those names you just listed have been involved in the master's story or like our past champions or, uh, you know, look at, at all these things you're citing. Like one of the things that's fascinating about the masters is how, uh, how they're able to get these characters involved on on sunday of the back nine like yeah. <laughs> it's i think it has a lot to do with the limited field right but do you do you attribute that to anything else like the masters are i consider one of the best storytellers in, in all of golf and everything from their you know television production to the course setup like what do you attribute that that build up to um, I mean, it's, it's probably a lot of things, but specifically to the characters that are involved, like, is it just a limited field or are there other th- 
factors at play. Yeah, I think the limited field, you know, I think that's a big part of it. I think, you know, the fact that you can see, you know, you can see a 46-year-old Jack Nicholas go and win the Masters just because of his knowledge of the golf course. Um, I think you can also, I think it's mm-hmm. also just because, you know, it's the same golf course every year. It's the only major that does that. And, you know, guys know this place like the back of their hands. And, you know, guys have been coming there for, you know, maybe they haven't won the tournament, guys like Jim Furyk or, um, you know, Ernie Els, but they've played in it, you know, 20 years in a row. And they, they know it, they know where to miss it. They know, you know, what flags to attack, what they can. And that's, you know, that's why, you know, you've seen Ernie play there, play well there. You know, you've seen him have chances like in 2004 against Phil, um, you know, have played the golf course well. I think that's why, you know, you see so many great players. Like, you know, last year, I mean, you look at Rory, Patrick Reed, um, Jordan Spieth, Ricky Fowler, John Rahm. I mean, all these guys that everybody was talking about leading into that week and saying, you know, man, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could get, you know, a Rory McIlroy and Jordan Spieth and, you know, Dustin Johnson, wouldn't it be great to, you know, see them battle it out on Sunday? I mean, that's basically basically what we got. And I think that's, you know, I think it's a, a tribute to core setup. I think, that, you know, Augusta, the committee, they want, to see that they they love when you know great players play well on their golf course and in their tournament i think they want um they want the you know the fun of that they don't want you know a us open setup because if they if they wanted to do it they could easily and you know we see we saw in 2007 when Zach Johnson won the masters um you know he he won at one over par I mean, he, they if they want to, they can set it up like a U.S. Open. They can make they can just dictate the speed of the greens, and you know they can make the winner at two or three over if they really want to. But you know they want to make it fun. They want to put the pin placements, you know, where they put them on Sunday, so the crowds are going crazy, and you can see you know birdies on the seventh hole, and you can see you know eagles on you know thirteen and fifteen, and you know they put that uh, back left pin location on fourteen, so the balls are funneling funneling towards the pan and you know i think they want to see that you know race towards the finish line that's what they want to have they don't want to have this you know grueling uh just you know grind it out pars are you know good enough to win scores they want to have you know they want birdies and they want eagles and i think that's you know it kind of brings a lot of people into the mix when the course is set up like that. And I think it also, you know, it also doesn't bring a lot of people in the mix because if you don't hit it long enough and, you know, that's not what you're known for, if you're known for a more grinded out mentality like a Zach Johnson, then, you know, today's Masters isn't for you. Oh, we'll, we'll get to ZJ. I, that's <laughs> one of my all-time favorites. I have some questions for you on that one. Um, okay. But we're, we're still in the 70s. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip forward to the 80s. Yeah. I know the 70s, okay. you know, we had... Uh, you know, Ray Floyd gets one. Love that guy. Uh, yeah. Player wins his third. But let's, let's get into the 80s. What, what, tell, tell us a little yeah. bit about some of your favorites from the 80s. 